0: Hey, this is Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. Today, I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film. Nick, I want to take a moment to just say how incredibly important this episode was to me. I have to say, I am not an alarmist, but I am alarmed at things like Breitbart, Alex Jones, the ascendancy of Donald Trump. On this podcast today, we have two guys who are pushing back that tide, Senator
1: Al Franken and Seth Meyers. Yeah, they're two guys who are... Very, very funny, but could barely be any more politically engaged, each in their different way. And there are two of the people who are basically giving me hope in a time when hope is really hard to come by. Nick, totally. Every
0: day, I see five updates on the New York Times about stupid shit that President
1: Trump has done. But then every night, we get to see Seth
0: Meyers taking it down.
1: Yeah. As Al Franken says in, in this conversation, like a closer look is, is a really, really important thing right now. You know what else is important? Things Al Franken's doing in the Senate.
0: And his new book, Al Franken, Giant of the Senate, which was the impetus for this fantastic conversation and big love to the iconic Strand Bookstore who put this event on at Cooper Union
1: earlier this month for allowing us to release this. It's a fantastic conversation and we're running it unedited. Uncut. It's an hour long. It's all gold. they're, They're clearly very good friends. Seth has a great interview, and he just feeds them stuff that just allows Franken to completely kill it. These two guys, who both made their name on Saturday Night Live, have gone on to
0: change the discourse of American politics, and they discourse about a lot of things in this talk.
1: Yeah, they talk about the dehumorizing process that had to take place when Al Franken initially ran for senator, and then during his early years in the Senate. They talk about President Trump simply not having a sense of humor. Yeah, I don't think he's funny. I've, I've never seen him laugh, and that's, to me, that's a big problem. We hear stories about Jeff Sessions about Ted Cruz, who weirdly kind of gets some uh, props comically, although Franken really takes him down as well. Uh, and, then, and then Obamacare. George Harrison. George Harrison, yeah. They kind of pivot into some SNL stuff. They talk about the Fart Doctor skit, which I, I, I like the idea that Jeff Sessions is, is the Fart Doctor. New nickname. New nickname. I, like, let's rebrand the man. <laughs> Save his political career. Not known as the man who recused himself from the Russian investigation. It's the new Santorum. Jeff Sessions. The FAR Doctor. And on that note,
0: should we roll this talk? Let's roll it.
2: Please join me in a warm welcome for Seth Myers and Senator Al Franken. Thank you all. Good evening,
3: everyone. How is everyone?
2: thank you for being here
3: uh it is an honor to be here with you tonight uh thank you for doing this you my, my have, pleasure you had a show tonight yeah i did a show and i came right here
2: thank there you. you go thank you that means a lot
3: i asked i actually even asked i said oh if we're going to do this you should come on my show tonight and what did you tell me
2: i can't i was uh i was on colbert yeah <laughs> And yet, he, and yet ask, he's not doing you a favor. I couldn't ask Stephen Colbert <laughs> to do this. He's on right at 1135. Yeah, that's true. He's like, yeah, no, uh, Seth came out to Minnesota uh, for me to yep. do a, a fundraiser there during the recount, right? It was during the recount? No, it was for,
3: um, the, it was for a woman who was running against Michelle Bachman. That's, that's what it was out for. You were senator when I went out.
2: Do you remember? I think you may have come
3: out twice. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I came out, I do remember I came out. Well, I want to talk about this because I came out to Minnesota, and it was really wonderful because you told me so many really funny stories about the Senate. And I've been really dining out on that because it's exciting. I know a lot of people in comedy. I only know the one senator. And your stories were fantastic. And I feel like this book is a lot of those stories that you have only been able to tell friends and acquaintances. And now, what made you finally decide to share all these insider stories with everybody?
2: Well, uh, first of all, after, and I write about all this in the book, when, when I first got to the Senate, I had won by 312 votes. And uh, so I was seated about six months uh, late. And uh, it was so close. and. My opponent, Norm Coleman, and the Republicans had put everything I'd ever said or written in comedy uh, through this machine called the dehumorizer, (laughs) um, which was built with very state-of-the-art Israeli technology, (laughs) and it it took the humor out of every joke I'd ever told, so it would be... um, Uh, Or written. I wrote a thing in a Playboy article um, which was the millennial Playboy issue. It was January 1st, 2000 and William F. Buckley uh, wrote in it and uh, Isaac Asimov and I wrote a funny piece and I thought I'm going to write a parody of a Playboy piece which is like, you know, what is the hip thing that a hip guy should have, right? And like, you know, they used to do that for stereos when I was a kid or, uh, you know, uh, jet skis or something like this. So I thought virtual sex, it's Playboy, right? And so I said it at the, uh, I I started by saying that, you know, this technology, the internet has done incredible things. And I wrote a joke, which is a very conservative joke, and you'll be the judge um, here it is. It's, uh, uh, the internet is an incredible learning tool. My son last year did a great sixth grade report on bestiality (laughs) and the kids in the class just loved him because he downloaded a lot of great visual aids from the internet. (laughs) And at that age, they're just sponges. (laughs) So this is a conservative joke. This is saying Parents, you may want to monitor what your kids, so, but it turned out, it turned into an ad, which was like, Al Franken is so depraved that he did jokes about bestiality, and it came from like infinity. Yeah. They wanted to give bestiality a real running start. Yeah. <laughs> and it did. And going into your eyeballs and around the back of your skull. <laughs> and my mother-in-law saw this ad and cried. <laughs> and so it was a vicious, vicious campaign. So I could not... I, when I got to the Senate, I said, I'm, I can't be funny. You know, I want the people of Minnesota have to know that I'm serious about this and I'm going to be a workhorse and not a show horse. So I spent the next five and a half years doing that and I got reelected by a very comfortable margin in 2014. Thank you. (laughs) And then I went, hell, now I can be funny (laughs) and it was funny because my, the dehumorizer they built, I had to build one myself. Which was my staff. Yeah. And my staff had to tell me, you know, to stop me all the time. Like, uh, as a senator, you write notes, right, to constituents, congratulatory notes, that kind of thing. And the first day I was in the Senate, right after I got sworn in, about an hour and a half later, I'm sitting at my desk and I get my first note that I'm gonna write, and it's for Ruth Anderson, who was turning 110. And I wrote, Dear Ruth, you have a bright future. And, you know. So my chief of staff, like, I give it to my assistant, and uh, my chief of staff comes in and goes like, What the hell is this? And I said, Well, it's it's a joke. I thought Ruth might enjoy it. And (laughs) And and he went, uh huh. And do you think Ruth's family will enjoy it? Yeah. You think her grandchildren will enjoy it? And I went, oh yeah.
3: They, I, 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 (laughs) you, you say in the book that you believe Senator McCain would like this note because you also mention a a birthday note that you wrote to him that your staff wouldn't let
2: you send to McCain. Yeah.
3: And yeah. I agree, because uh, Senator McCain has a good sense of humor. I he think
2: does. And I wrote this. this. This one actually had a debate on it. I wrote, uh, uh, dear John, um, you know, uh, happy birthday. It was a birthday note. Happy birthday. Um, uh, you know, hope you have a great year. Of course, any year would be better than a year you spent in the Hanoi Hilt. <laughs> yeah. What's this? What's this? <laughs> It's a joke. He's, uh, John's got a good sense of humor. You can't wait. Does his staff have a good sense of humor about his time in the Hanoi Hilton?
3: And now uh, who was it? Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Uh, who, who had the note that she told you in the book that she has framed because she liked it
2: so much? Oh, this is, so what happened was because I had my own dehumorizer, my chief of staff, on the notes particularly, I just wrote whatever I wanted, and I knew it wouldn't get past them. Right. So I would do birthday notes, and I wouldn't think about what I wrote. I'd just write it. I'd just write a note. And so uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison, who was from te- uh, senator from Texas, now retired, comes up to me on the floor and goes, I just loved your birthday note. And I had no idea what I had written. Her. <laughs> and it was something on the order. So I go back And I found out what a way it was like, dear Kay, you're just a great senator, blah, blah. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, no, I thought this was Kay Hagan. (laughs) You know? And she was like, I love that. God, it's so funny. The whole office. You said
3: you had to show people you were a workhorse and not a show horse. I I came down for the Mark Twain Award. Tina Fey was getting it. And Amy Poehler and I came and had lunch uh, in your office. Right, and then you walked us around the Senate and we felt like you were telling us every joke that you felt like no one you worked (laughs) with would get. (laughs) And so I actually feel like, my analogy would be that you were a racehorse that was not let out of your stable (laughs) until you got to write this book, because you seemed so repressed with all this comedy that you did not have the right audience for.
2: Now, I could be funny with my colleagues on the floor. We had rules. We had rules. I could be funny on the floor with my colleagues as long as it wasn't too loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, my colleagues, you know, right away, because a lot of the Republicans I was worried about, because I had spent a lot of my uh, s- the career in satire writing, you know, heaping scorn and ridicule on Republicans. So I thought they might be wary of me. But they got it right away that I was, so like the first, I got sworn in. And then, like, a few minutes later, uh, Jim DeMint, a very, very conservative senator from South Carolina, he's since retired uh, from the Senate, and came up to me and said, how are things on the far left? And I said, they're great. How are things on the nutcase right? <laughs> and, and he laughed. He, just, he yeah. thought it was funny. And then we just, that was our relationship, was just giving each other sh- crap, you yeah. know? And... Uh, and a lot of my colleagues where I told you this when we had 60 senators at this time 60 Democrats And there were uh, only uh, 40 Republicans at that time
3: uh. <laughs> It can't happen it can't happen
2: so one day I just went over to the the Republican side uh, with Rish and um, uh holy moly, uh, the other, the t- the other uh, oh boy, Mike Crapo, Mike Crapo, so Rish and Crapo, and I go over there, and I go like, oh my God, it's so crowded over there. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just had to come over here to breathe. <laughs> and they, they got it, they thought yeah. I was funny, and also I laugh a lot, and so it took like a day for my colleagues to go. Oh, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he became a comedian because he's funny and he likes to laugh. <laughs> so, so that was that was quick. But I couldn't be publicly funny.
3: You talk in the book. There's a moment um, where you actually you write in the book about both the angel and the devil on your shoulder arguing with you about the joke that you want to tell.
2: Yeah. Uh, so. I had told a mild joke that came out of the situation in the Sotomayor hearings. And she had said that she had um, you know, become a, 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 a prosecutor, she had been a prosecutor because of watching the Perry Mason show. And I said to her, when it got to my questioning, I think it's odd that you became a prosecutor from watching a show where the prosecutor lost every case. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, she said, well, actually, Perry Mason lost one case. And I said, okay, well, we'll get to that later, not meaning not to. But then I had a 30-minute line of questioning. I had about a minute and a half left. I couldn't develop my last line of questioning. I said, okay, what case was it that Perry Mason lost? And she said, I don't know. And I said, didn't the White House prepare you? <laughs> and it got a big laugh, right? And this is like my seventh day in the Senate. But it wasn't I thought the rule was like I couldn't think that was just in reaction to what she said, right? Oh my god, it was like there were all these navel-gazing pieces like is Franken unable to not be funny? And so I just went like okay can't do say anything funny. So then like in that was in July in November I'm in a hearing on uh, the Employee Non-Discrimination Act, ENDA, and um, which is, uh, there's still about 30 states in which you can get married now on a Saturday and Monday be fired for being LGBT. And so this was a law that uh, Jeff Merkley from Oregon uh, put forward to ENDA to say that you can't do that. You can't discriminate against people on, on the uh, basis of their gender identity or their uh, preferences or whatever. And so, um, so I'm sitting in the hearing, and there's all these LGBT activists, and Tom Perez, who is then like the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, is going to testify. And there's about, I don't know, seven Democrats, and I'm last in this. Not one Republican showed up. And that was incredibly unusual. Not even the ranking member. I'd never been in a hearing where the ranking member didn't show up. So there was not one Republican there. So I immediately went, wouldn't it be funny (laughs) if I, when it got to me to say, I think it's a shame that none of the gay members of the committee showed up. I heard this voice. Tell it. It'll kill. It'll kill. And that was the devil over there, and the angel was going like, "Now, Al, you know why we came here." Oh, screw it. You know they're all LGBT activists in here. They'll love it. They'll love it. you will kill. It'll kill. Al, you know, and then I just had. All I could do was have this argument back and forth while everyone was doing their questions, and I'm going, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the angel and the devil each got an angel and a devil, and the the devil's angel and the angel's devil worked it out.
3: Okay. And it was you managed to
2: avoid it. You you, you yeah, did your stuff. I said round. you can be mildly funny from now on in spots. Yeah. This isn't it.
3: You talked about that's a hard thing to give up because it would have killed you also mentioned one of the reasons if We're ever watching c-span, and we're seeing you speak. There's a reason you don't tell a joke that has nothing to do with this It's impossible. Oh, yeah, yeah
2: when I was first deciding whether to run uh, This is in 2005 I was trying to decide whether to run in 2008 I met with Jeff Blodgett who was uh, Paul Wellstone's campaign manager in all his campaigns and he said to me just for an exercise Write a five-minute speech that has no jokes in it, and this is—I'm now—it—I it, I just said, why would you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> that what? And uh, and but there's a reason you don't tell jokes on the floor of the Senate in a speech because there's no one there. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you know, you think it's a, on a tight single of you. And you think there could be 99 other senators there, but there aren't. There's no one there other than staff and, and uh, you know the floor staff, and so don't tell a joke because it'll it just will be silent. <laughs> right? And it'll die, you know. And at home, it looks like oh, he told a joke and it died. <laughs> yeah, you know. But no, there's no one there, so that's why you don't do that.
3: I remember being in Minneapolis with you, and we went out to dinner went to a restaurant with you and your wonderful wife, Franny. Mm -hmm. And they had a private room set up for us in the back. And uh, you and Franny immediately said, there's absolutely no way we can sit in the back. We have to sit
2: in the center of the restaurant. Do you remember that? Well, we had to sit, not in the center, we had to sit in, the. uh, they saw we were going into a private room. Right. And I said, no, no, Franny said no. Yeah. And then we went out to.
3: And, And you, I remember you telling me that, the reason is when you win by 330 votes. 12. 312. 312 yeah.
2: But, but you, thanks, d- you have
3: to, You have to thank everyone.
2: Well, you have to thank everyone, and you can't lose a vote like, oh, that Franken. Yeah. Now that he's a senator, he thinks he's better than everybody. He's got a private room. <laughs> yeah. You know, we just don't
3: do that. And you fly back and forth from D.C. to uh, Minneapolis all the time, obviously? Yeah. You've flown so much that you would get upgraded to first class every flight just on miles, and you won't allow that to happen either, right?
2: No, Uh, because people assume, if you're in first class, that the government is paying for it. Right. And they aren't, Uh, either way. And also, yeah, I have free upgrades you know, I've, they know me now, so they don't give them to me. <laughs> yeah. But I just, no, I go, fly coach, and it's, you know, it's not, you know, uh, it's fine. I mean, it's fine, I just.
3: Yeah, you know. and I would imagine having your constituents walk by. Yeah, yeah but a-
2: you don't want a tweet yeah. or, you know, a picture of you in first getting a cocktail or something, <laughs> and uh, they're in, in coach. So, and, and it's amazing how many times people go, thank you. Thank you for writing Coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so great that you're writing Coach.
3: Um, so, obviously this is an interesting time. It's one of the reasons this book seems to be coming out at a good time. Um. You, I, I want to talk about uh, with Jeff
2: Sessions, who's a friend. Senator Sessions. Senator uh, Sessions and I uh, were friends. (laughs) Yeah. But Uh, he, uh, you know, when I first got there, I said, uh, I got advice from um, uh, Hillary's uh, former um, chief of staff, who said to me, go to all your hearings, be a workhorse. Uh, do all, go all your hearings go early, stay late, go to all of them. So I would go to all the judiciary hearings, and very often these are just perfunctory nomination hearings on non-controversial judge nominees, and it would be just uh, Leahy, the chairman at that time, and Sessions, the ranking member at that time, and me. The three of us would be in these all these different things, and I'd always ask good questions, I'd be prepared, and, and Sessions would go like, geez, you know, this guy's you know working in. and so uh, <laughs> and uh, so about, I don't know, a month in or something, uh, Leahy had to go to an appropriations uh, meeting or something. so he asked me to chair. so I get there early, of course, and I'm uh, there. I'm sitting in the chairman's seat, and uh, Jeff Sessions comes in he goes, "Well, a meteoric rise!" <laughs> and, and I say, and well-deserved. <laughs> and he laughed. Yeah. Now, I like anyone who laughs at anything <laughs> I say, right? right? Isn't that... Yeah. Don't you... Isn't that basically how you judge people? We used to always... <laughs> yeah. And we used to always say at SNL,
3: there would be a host that everyone would dislike. And you'd be complaining. Steve Higgins, uh, the wonderful producer at SNL, who's also uh, Jimmy Fallon's sign he would always say, you'd be complaining about the host. You'd be like, oh, this guy's the worst. I can't believe it. And then he'd say, he thinks you're really funny. And you'd go, oh, no, well, I really, yeah. <laughs> oh, in that case, maybe I've misjudged him, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, you actually, because watching the question you asked Jeff Sessions that got him in all this trouble, and you admitted the book, he answered a different question than the one you asked him.
2: Right. Uh, it had just come out that some AP report that uh, members of the Trump campaign had met with Russians uh, during the campaign, continuous, continuously during the campaign. I said, I don't, I don't <clears throat> expect you to know this. This report just came out. You've been testifying all day. So I said, but this came out as AP and I don't expect you to know it, but let me ask you this, uh, if this turns out to be true and you became attorney general, what would you do? Meaning would you recuse yourself? course. And he said, you know, well, you know, he just answered that he had, uh, I've been a surrogate for the campaign, and I just tell you that I didn't meet with any uh, Russians during the campaign, or have communication with any Russians during the campaign. And um, I went, okay. And that turned out not to be true. And this is, uh, (laughs) and you're testifying under oath. And Those are pretty, you know, he met him at the convention in Cleveland and uh, had a meeting in his office with him during the campaign. And then it turns out he had another meeting with him at the Mayflower. Uh, So then seven weeks later, it comes out in the Washington Post that he had these meetings and at that point he recused himself. So a lot of people credit me with him recusing himself and therefore, uh, Mueller is that we have the special prosecutor. And they think that I, you know, was playing three-dimensional chess, (laughs) and I'm just four moves ahead of everybody else, (laughs) and that I knew that he would pivot from the question "Would you recuse yourself?" to, well, I didn't meet with him, and and then uh, and that that's why we would get him, and he would recuse himself, and we'd get Mueller. And that's, that was what happened, that was the case, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> you,
3: I want to go through some of your other, I mean, it, the book's wonderful and your relationship with other Democratic senators is, is good reading, but it is fascinating to hear about the efforts you made with your Republican colleagues, uh, Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. Uh, you made an, every
2: effort. Well, Here's the thing, I was saying that DeMint has a sense of humor which you wouldn't necessarily think, Uh, that uh, Lindsey Graham, for example, is really funny, he's a really funny guy. Um, uh, Last year when he was like running 15th out of like 17 in the Republican presidential primaries, I went up to him and I said, Lindsey, if I were voting in the Republican primaries, I'd vote for you. And he said, that's my problem. (laughs) (laughs) So so I have a lot of funny colleagues. Tom Coburn of Oklahoma has no sense of humor. (laughs) And I think he would say that. He would kind of acknowledge that actually sometimes. And he was on judiciary and sometimes we go, I don't get Al's jokes. And so, uh, but the first like three exchanges I had with him, we just, you know, it didn't connect at all. So I went up to him, I was there about two, three weeks and I said, Tom, can I, can I take you to lunch? And he went, well, take me to breakfast. So I said, okay, okay. So we went, met for breakfast a couple days later in the Senate dining room and, Uh, So we're it's about 8 in the morning. I said look Tom for the next 40 45 minutes, whatever it is Let's just have fun. Okay, and he goes okay fun, and uh, And so I said okay, you know we can talk about anything we can talk about our families we can talk about uh, Politics we can talk about our careers before the Senate and he was called dr. No, in the Senate because he was, had been a doctor, he was an obstetrician, gynecologist. And also he said no to pretty much everything because he was so conservative and he didn't believe the federal government should spend money. So I said, we can talk about politics, we can, you know, talk about our careers, but let's have fun. He goes, okay, fun. And so I said, okay, uh, good. Let's talk about careers, our previous careers. Let me ask you to be a doctor in Oklahoma. Do you have to have any formal education? <laughs> and, and he said, yes, you've got to go to medical school. <laughs> and so I, I said, well, okay, Tom, that was a joke. And that's what I used to do for my career, you see. And so we, uh, the rest of the breakfast was fun and I, you know, I explained him what jokes were. (laughs) And uh, what the proper reaction is to a joke. And uh, we had, and then I got a note later from him saying I had a lot of fun.
3: That's great. You, it does not seem like, uh you, uh, you have some kind words for Senator Ted Cruz and his sense of humor. You don't completely. Yes, for, a sense, of hu- for yeah. a sense of humor. This is the
2: thing you should know about Ted Cruz. I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz. And I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> now. And, and one of the reasons I like him a little bit he does value humor, I think. Yeah, I think. You never know with this guy, but he um, uh, I justify this in the book about he just his word's not good. He's like a toxic coworker. Uh, he's like the guy that microwaves fish in the lunchroom. <laughs> his,
3: and this, this is not a partisan. This is a nonpartisan no, no, issue. No, 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 like, no, no. Like, it seems like Republicans also I did don't have like... a
2: Republican say, I love the, the, the Cruz chapter. <laughs> uh, uh, the, um, there's a story in the Cruz chapter. My senior senator, I don't know why in the introduction, uh, the, the, uh, the, the introducer, Caitlin, uh, I think, said, I had to say that I was a junior senator. Seemed very unnecessary, but... Um, <laughs> But I am, and my senior senator, Amy Klobuchar, is very funny. Yeah. And and Amy uh, refuses to let me write jokes for her if she's in a thing. And she she will let me look at them, though, and maybe punch them up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So she, in uh, 2013, she... um, was uh, got the, uh, signed, uh, she, she was asked to do the gridiron dinner, which was mm-hmm. a con- humorous uh, dinner, and she was taking the Democratic side. So she ran some jokes by me, and one was about Cruz. And this was, in 2013, this was just like a couple months after the, the carnival cruise that had gone out to sea <laughs> and had been towed back after 10 days out there and it got towed back because the engine died and nothing worked on the thing. It was called the Poop Cruise. Yeah. Remember that? Called the Poop Cruise because there was stuff. It was terrible. It was a terrible cruise. <laughs> so, so she wrote this joke, her joke. She said, when most people think of a bad cruise, they think of Carnival, but we think of Ted. <laughs> so I said, Amy, I've got a rewrite for it. But um, anyway, I'll tell you the rewrite, at that. that'll be the end of this story. So uh, the Thursday before the gridiron, uh, before the Saturday of the gridiron, I see Amy go to Chuck Schumer and ask him something, and then she goes to someone else, and I go like, oh, I see, she's clearing the jokes that she's telling about her colleagues. And then I see her head to Ted Cruz, and I go like, I just, I just want to be part of this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So Amy kind of goes up to him. She goes, Ted, I have a joke. I'm doing the gridiron. Doing the gridiron on Saturday. I have a joke about you. and I'd like to get your permission to tell it. And he goes, well, what's your, what's your joke? And she says, well, uh, it is when most people uh, think of a difficult cruise. So she's changed bad to difficult. She's softened it. <laughs> uh, they think of carnival. But we Democrats in the Senate think of Ted. So she said, double soften. we double yeah. soften. So I'm going, right, okay. And he goes, I'll tell you what. What if you changed it to a challenging cruise? And I see Amy kind of go like, okay, now it's, it's just not funny. It's just not funny anymore. And he's smart. He's very smart. And, yeah. And smart. Uh, And he sees that, and he goes, I'll tell you what. I believe in the First Amendment. You tell your your joke. And I go, oh, man. (laughs) I go like, Ted, I actually have done a rewrite on uh, on Amy's joke, and I think it's a lot better. You want to hear it, and I see Amy go like, oh, my God. (laughs) He's gonna tell, and I want to be here for this. So Ted goes, sure. I go, okay. Uh, Here, this is the rewrite. Uh, When most people think of a cruise as full of shit... (laughs) They think of of Carnival, (laughs) but we think of Ted. And... He... um, He had argued, he was Solicitor General of Texas, he had ar- argued cases in the Supreme Court, his reaction was, <laughs> I went, and then I walked away, so, that's.
3: So, last Friday, was that as uh, thrilling to be in the Senate chamber as it was to watch on television? Friday morning? Uh, yeah. Yes, Friday morning. Well, oh, yeah.
2: Um, it was a big, big victory for the American people, yeah. let me tell you. Um, And, you know, obviously Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and John McCain, uh, they stepped up. But the credit really goes to the American people because people made their voices heard. And this, the Republicans had seven years to come up with something to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act with. And everything they came up with was terrible. (laughs) It was awful. And it left tens of millions of Americans without health insurance who otherwise had it. And actually, the prices went up for most people. And it was just awful. And I'm co-chair of the Rural Health Caucus, so I go around all around Minnesota to hospitals and nursing homes, and people just hated this thing, and they made their voices heard. It had a 17% approval rating, most of these different iterations, uh, which is exactly the number of Americans who say they have seen a ghost. (laughs) And uh, I'd like to see the Venn diagram. I think there's (laughs) I think there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> a ghost told me this would be okay. Yeah. Those are the people that approved of it. And, and uh, people made their voices heard at town hall meetings and demonstrations and emails and letters. And I think it made a real difference. And I don't think many of my Republican colleagues were comfortable voting the way they voted. And um, I'm, I hope that this means that we will go to hear, you know, to regular order to have hearings in our committees. In I'm on the health committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. We should be right away focusing on how to uh, uh, bolster the uh, the exchanges. Uh, there are things that we can do right away to do that. Uh, actually, some a bipartisan group in the House has come up with something that's not bad. Um, and I have some problems with it, but I mean we can get there, and we should, need to do that because these, um, you know, th- these are coming on uh, uh, online the- these uh, these plans, and we can actually have prices that are lower this year if we do the things that that we need to do. And we also need to get under control prescription drug prices, which have spiked in the last three years. Everybody knows it. <clears throat> And and I have uh, a comprehensive uh, bill on to bring down the cost of pharmaceuticals that has the ideas of a lot of uh, senators, including Amy Klobuchar, um, and uh, that would you know pri- uh, allow uh, i sorry allow Medicare to negotiate with the pharmaceuticals, which would save. billion a year, $26 to $30 billion a year, let people reimport drugs from Canada. We we make so many of the drugs in this world. We pay more than any other country. Uh, We pay several times as taxpayers. We pay pay for NIH, National Institutes of Health, uh, basic research that the pharmaceuticals use. Pharmaceutical companies spend more on marketing than they do on research. We need to get those under control. And we can do it if we work on a bipartisan basis. I really believe that.
3: Now, I hope so. I feel like the world knows where we stand on the president. I feel like the world knows where you and I stand on the president. Are there times, though, that you think the president is funny?
2: Um, There was once, I thought, one moment where I thought the president deliberately made me laugh, and I I, I don't even, it doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) No, I don't think he's funny at all.
3: Did you see that he uh, published this transcript of this Wall Street Journal interview he did? Oh, this is actually separate of that. Uh, They just, uh, SI went golfing with him, and they're writing a story on golf.com where supposedly he told people at Bedminster, members of his club, uh, he said of the White House, that White House is a dump. And I actually thought the writing of that is, that's the funniest way of saying it. Like, the White House is a dump is pretty funny, but that "That White House House is a dump. (laughs) But he's like a funny character who sometimes says the funniest
2: version. Oh, yeah. No, no. The the fact that he exists... Uh, yeah, is in certain ways funny. Did are you? Uh, but you, not really. I you, mean, you mentioned in the book being struck by the hypocrisy
3: of everything that Republicans seem okay with him saying being the same party that pulled a bestiality ad from your
2: work. Yeah, as a know, comedian, I never actually committed bestiality. Yeah, I never grabbed an animal by its genitals. Yeah. You you famously have never done that, (laughs) and so see you know what I kind of you know had to deal with in terms of uh, you know attacks, uh, uh, just being an awful person, um, and then see what we elected as president. it was was ironic to me. I had written about 80, 90, 90% of the book before uh, the election. And I didn't, then he got elected, then it happened. And I didn't want to write a book, which was, you know, the Trump administration until the book was locked. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to do that. So I really started to look at what I had already written about my race and his race. And about what I had written done in my career with lies and lying liars who tell them, and Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot, and talked about lies. I was big on, uh, you know, that that I. It was almost quaint that I made a living, you know, showing that people were lying. <laughs> and now it doesn't matter yeah. at all. And uh, so, and also, you know, those books were about Rush Limbaugh's big fat idiot was about Gingrich, but it was also about Rush and talk radio, and it was uh, uh, Lies and Lying Liars about Fox News, and uh, we have become a nation where it gets our information now with the internet, too, uh, where we just self-sort and get information that confirms our own bias, and it's a very troubling, uh, troubling thing. What do you, do you have
3: any faith or any hope that the Republican Party will adjust itself in any way? I have hope.
2: Yeah. I have hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are colleagues that I talk to. uh, I know there are colleagues that I talk to who are distressed uh, by the president and by his uh, behavior. And they're a little, they're just nervous. They're afraid because... uh, his base seems to be sticking with him more or less. Um, and their his base is kind of their base. So there are some that are very worried about distancing themselves or criticizing him. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's them. They have to make that calculus. But uh, there are some that have kind of been brave about this. And uh, Flake, uh, Jeff Flake has been uh, out front and Ben sass and some others
3: it's funny we try to get Republicans to come on our show and the only ones we can get are Republicans who've spoken out against Donald Trump we can get Ben sass to come on we can get Lindsey Graham to come on but the reality is you realize no Republican who supports him wants to actually come on and answer any questions about well
2: they may have noticed that at the beginning of your show very often (laughs) uh, when you take a closer look yeah that is nothing but Trump bashing, yeah. combined with bashing someone else in the Trump administration yeah. or one of his family. I mean, yeah. it just, uh, so they may be going like, I'm uncomfortable, yeah. um, <laughs> identify coming on after a closer look yeah. in which uh, the president of the United States, who is with my party and who 86% of Republicans in my state love and who I have to get the endorsement, you know, I have to get the nomination in my state, and I can't possibly lose to a, to a Democrat because I'm in a red, really red state. I'm not going to go on that show. <laughs> yeah, when you lay it out like that, far. I feel like
3: I'm probably wasting my breath with the invitations.
2: Yeah, like, don't, uh, Jim Inhofe is not going to go on your show. <laughs> right. He might actually do it, He, you yeah. know. Um, But, you know, uh, yeah, that's why. Did you really need that explanation?
3: (laughs) In general, Uh, I just like that we
2: were talking about the
3: show. You know, I feel like that's good. (laughs) Uh, SNL, it was very nice, because obviously I grew up watching you on the show, and, and you were always very kind when I was at the show, you were somebody who would stop by every now and then. You submitted some sketches. Yes. You submitted a sketch more than once, the same sketch. Right. There was a sketch called "Fart Doctor." Fart Doctor. Uh, Fart Doctor never even went to dress. No, it never went. It never went good enough at the table to even go to dress rehearsal.
2: Now here's what happened. Um, uh, The week Al Gore hosted, Mm -hmm. uh, Al, uh, the, the former Vice President, asked me to come in as a guest writer, and I wrote on that show. And, you know, I hadn't written for a long time, so I wrote a a fair amount of stuff, including Fart Doctor. And I realized that, I'll tell you what the sketch is. Okay. (laughs) So it's three doctors in their white doctor coats who are complaining about this doctor that's showing up that he's late. And uh, two of the doctors are very skeptical about him. And one of the doctors say, I'm telling you he is the best diagnostician in the world. From Duke. He can diagnose. We can't, we don't know what's wrong with these people. We've been unable to diagnose them. He is the best in the world. So he comes in, and you know, I, Al Gore, I can't be fart doctor. So I held it. I held it for another host. And then the fart, fart doctor comes in. I just called it fart doctor on a lark. Yeah. Because the word, but but what but happened It's is, a
3: pretty good title for what this doctor <laughs> ends up being. No
2: no well and and so the doctor comes in and he's read all the all the you know the uh, files of each uh, the the cases, and he said I'm ready for the first patient and the first patient comes in, and he says I, I want you to fart, and what? And then the other doctor says no no it's you know do, you know he said. Oh, Okay, and he works up and farts, and he goes, is your mother half Salesian? The guy goes, yes, yes. Did you have tabbouleh salad today? (laughs) Yes, I did. Okay, you have, and then it was some diagnosis, some disease that the other doctors couldn't diagnose, and they all go, that's amazing. And he goes, it's okay. You're going to be okay. All we need to do is this and this and this, and you're going to be fine. The guy goes, oh, thank God. Boom. Okay. Next one comes in. Oh, then and then as that one goes out, he takes out an electric fan. Little, little, one of those little ones. Because right. <laughs> so you don't want to misdiagnose
3: the next patient. Yeah, yeah. With the previous. So he does that. Yeah. And that's
2: Fart Doctor, okay? Yeah. So, <laughs> and... And you know, it it has a good build. There's uh there's a patient who's just a big asshole and it turns out that he's terminal and everybody's happy. Yeah. You know, all the other doctors hate him and okay, that guys. And then at the end they have a guy who just you can't do it and then he he says this doesn't make any sense and it turns out that that it was going to be Amy Polar had, had farted and he says Oh my God, we gotta get you to surgery right away. And that was the end of the sketch. So it was a perfect sketch. (laughs) (laughs) So I kept submitting it. I go, like, Christopher Walken, he could be the fart doctor, you know? (laughs) And then so I would, but when you're not there to talk people through the sketch, it, 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 so.
3: I can't believe you think the problem was you weren't there to explain it to us. (laughs) Like, that. A room full of comedy professionals at the top of their game couldn't wrap their head around this premise.
2: (laughs) It was the way you perform, anyway.
3: You You called me on the phone, and and you would give me line readings for how to do my character. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm still, but now here's the thing that just (laughs) pisses me off about it is that is Tina Fey. Yes. Okay, so (laughs) Tina Fey, in her uh, Thirty Rock show, has the show within the show, right? Uh, the girly show. The, uh, yeah. And... That was
3: what it was originally called, Yeah, episode one.
2: Yeah. Um, and Fart Doctor becomes a running joke. Yeah. That they got to, you know, they, we got to go block Fart Doctor. <laughs> and when she meets Matt Damon, who becomes her love interest, like he's a pilot, right? And she meets him, and I think the first, she kind of lies about who she is, and then finally she says that she writes for the show, that she writes... For and he goes, oh, you know what I love on that show is Fart Doctor. And she goes, I write those. <laughs> I write those. <laughs> and I really... You see Tina every once in a while, yeah. right? She owes me money. Yeah. It's true. It's true.
3: You talk... It's I'm actually, so
2: glad we've been... Uh, we've cleared the air. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you talk about...
2: Thank you. That was wonderful.
3: <laughs> well, I you know because Fart Dr. noticeably absent from the book. So I wanted to make sure that we got I did not uh, paperback. I got Do you remember name, my... uh, do you remember during 2008, I haven't mentioned this to you yet tonight, but do you remember you called me and pitched an idea? Mm. I won't go into the details of it. But you pitched a pol- Do you remember it? I do. And it was, a, it was a, a, a sketch about the election.
2: Okay. I kept having to say, uh, you know, I'm Al Franken, and I approve this message, right? Yeah. And I'd see these ads that were just scurrilous lies, and John McCain would go, I'm John McCain. <laughs> I approve this message. So I thought it'd be funny. And that was the only idea I had, which yeah. is that'd be funny to have John McCain who... Uh, Daryl Hammond played mm-hmm. in a very funny way to have him have to record that, which you only have to record it once right. for audio, but uh, to keep recording it on and the ads would become more and more um, ridiculous yeah, and, and that 's what happened, and then you, like an idiot <laughs> put there's a there 's an ethic in in comedy writing which is in at least at SNL that you put the name you put the names of who wrote the sketch and you put the name of the guy who thought of the idea first right so like an idiot he puts my fucking name on <laughs> <laughs> now i will admit i was an idiot
3: but it was done from the right place it was i was being ethical I genuinely was. I wasn't trying to burn you.
2: No, no, no. I know, I know. And uh, but boy, it was not helpful. No, because the press picked
3: up on it right away.
2: Yeah, it somehow leaked out. Yeah, <laughs> because there's only 80 people that read through.
3: <laughs> but I always felt bad about that. But it was a really fun sketch, and thank you. <laughs>
2: You talk about. uh, I barely had anything to do with it. uh,
3: Look, it's too late. Your name was on it. I don't know. (laughs) You can't get out of it now. You talk about Tom Davis, who was also one of the most wonderful people I ever got the chance to meet on the show. A legend. You guys started together. Franken and Davis started. Franken and Davis. High school. And that. I was always so jealous of Andy Sammer, Yoram Atacone, Akiva, how long they knew each other. Right. So you were how old when you meet Tom? Uh, he was... I
2: was 15. Yeah. And he was, I guess, 14. 14 you know. So we knew each other in high school. And uh, we went to this school together. And we performed in the school. And then we started performing at a place in Minnesota. It was like Second City. And uh, in high school. And we were a team for years and years and years and years. And Tom died... Um, a number of, a few years ago um, of cancer, and um, it was a very. We had a memorial actually in 8H, A&H, which was beautiful. I thought really it was a beautiful. wonderful thing of Lorne to do.
3: Really funny, really sweet stories.
2: He outlived his diagnosis. Yeah, he had been diagnosed. He was given a year to live at the most, and he lived three years. And he kept apologizing to people. He was, <laughs> he he was incredibly. The, what he grew up, he said, this is what he said to me, because uh, we had broken up because he was uh, an alcoholic and drug user, and um, he never stopped, but um, when he got that diagnosis, he just grew up, and the way he went out was really a gift to me. Does mean, who has the book? Because I want to read something it's right here. Oh, we a- got) <laughs> Of
3: course. Do you need a water?
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You talk show hosts are so funny. Okay, so let me Here, figure you want out me, where, hold where your... this is. Hold okay. on. Hold on. Hold on. I was going to ask you to read something from this. No, what I'm going to read is, basically, I did this um, uh, eulogy For Tom, after he died, uh, in uh, at um, yeah, I must be
3: at in the Senate.
2: In the Senate, I and you know I'm a crier, so I had to do it like practice it like 40 times, and um, so I could do it, and I made it all the way to rest in peace. And so um, this is the next day. I was sitting in a judiciary committee hearing, when a staffer slipped me a note. Leader Reed is on the phone for you. It was unusual for the majority leader to call me in the middle of a hearing. I got up, went to the ante room, and picked up the phone. Harry? Al, I read your eulogy to your friend. He was quite a guy. Yes, sir, he was. I love this part, the dark side of death. I smiled. Then Harry read a passage from a piece Tom had written about dying. And this is In the foreseeable future, I will be a dead person. I want to remind you that dead people are people, too. (laughs) There are good dead people and bad dead people. Some of my best friends are dead people. (laughs) Dead people have fought in every war. (laughs) (laughs) Then Harry said, it's perfect. Yes, I said, perfect.
3: I... That's really lovely. Hopefully, there was something else, because again, you talked about how he grew up and and had this very noble end of his life. And there's another great line that Tom has. I hope I'm saying your line, right? Where you basically say that you would like to go, when you go, you would like.
2: Oh, yeah. I said, you know, the way you've been going out, and this is a couple few days before he died. And uh, I said, the way you've gone gone out is, has been a gift to me and I hope, you know, I hope I do that, do, you know, go out the way you do. And he said, I hope you go out faster. <laughs> <laughs> he was, you know, Tom had a very sardonic sense of humor. He was a sweet, sweet guy, but yeah. he was very uh, sardonic. And he was a little bit more sardonic in uh, those, 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 uh, in those days. Uh, The legend of
3: Al Franken at SNL, a story I've always wanted to ask you about that I've always heard was about George Harrison coming up on the 17th floor, sitting at a piano. Is this correct?
2: Yeah. Let me tell this because, uh, (laughs) uh, well, I mean, just to get it right. This this is not not in the book. Right. This is not in the book. So, um, George Harrison was one of the Beatles. (laughs) <laughs> and um, you know, you're head writer. Yep. And the show gets written essentially Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Yeah. Early, late night, early morning. Um, and so the prime time for writing, I'd say, is between 8 p.m. and 3 or 4 a.m., don't you think? Yeah. Would, would that be fair? So, George Harrison shows up at the office and goes into Lauren's office and everybody there's a beetle and it's not Ringo. There's a beetle in in the office on the seventeenth floor. Nothing happens. Okay, so this is about eight o'clock or something like that. And there's like no one will do anything. Now, I'm a producer at this point. I'm going like, guys, we got to write the show. George Harrison's here. (laughs) here." So then Lauren and George go out to dinner. So now we start to get to work. Well, three hours later, they come back from dinner. And George Harrison is very drunk. (laughs) And he starts hanging around and nothing is getting done. No one can write anything. They're just trying to be around George Harrison, of course. So then, then he sits down at the piano and starts playing music. A Beatle playing music. Live in our office. Everyone is gathered around the piano. 20 minutes. 30 minutes, 40 minutes, nothing is going to get done until he leaves. So my office happened to be about 12 feet from the piano. And I go up to Phil Hartman and I said, watch this. (laughs) Now remember Harrison's very drunk, okay. So I go into my office and I slam the door as hard as I can and I didn't see it because I did from the inside but evidently he like jumped out of his out of the piano bench like about three feet (laughs) and then left. (laughs) Uh, And I saved that week's show. Yeah. And I'm sure everyone appreciated it and looked back on it with. Yeah. Well, I still have people from that, uh, uh, Shannon Vaughn, I saw her out in LA and she just was still cursing me. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, Thank you so much Such an honor to be with you Senator Franken
2: Really appreciate it The book's fantastic Can I say one thing Thank you Seth Of course, my pleasure Uh, I, you know Look, what you do on your show Is so great Uh, A closer look is, is just a gift To everybody in this time Thank you and, you're, and also, uh, you're a wonderful interviewer. Uh, it's uh, uh, obvious tonight. I mean, sometimes you have a better guest than others. Uh, but, you know, I just wanna say that, you know, I was a satirist, I, uh, a comedian, a writer like you. Uh, now I'm a senator. But I just don't want you to think for a moment that what you do is any less important than what I do even though it is.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Hey.
1: Seth, what you do is important to us. And Strand Bookstore too. thank you to them for letting us run this on the podcast. And of course, Al Franken, giant at the Senate, out now. If you're in New York, head over to the Strand. If you're
0: not, Order it on strandbooks.com. If you enjoyed today's talk, head over to iTunes and
1: Stitcher, rate and review, because every time you do, it helps someone else find the show. And also go back and listen to a previous episode of the Talk House podcast with Seth Meyers and Craig Finn from The Hold Steady. A classic, just like you, Nick. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Go visit us on our YouTube channel. Or check out the website, talkhouse.com. New written content there every day. I'm Ellie Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson behind the boards, our lead engineer and co-producer Mark Yoshizumi. He's not got a microphone, but we love him all the same. Till next time. See you then.